Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a new podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We'll be talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better, for the worse, or still to be determined as we move out of shutdown. If you like what you hear, please consider making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. In this episode, we're going back to school to see how California's public schools will handle post-pandemic education. When kids go back to in-person learning, what will it be like? How will the classrooms be set up? How will the teachers teach differently? How will the school administrators handle the needs of their students, parents, and teachers? And how will California's public schools be different, for better or for worse, when the new school year begins? We're asking these questions to David Miyashiro, superintendent of the Cajon Valley Unified School District. His was one of the few in California, and in the nation, to keep schools open for in-person learning during the pandemic. And unlike many other districts in the state, Cajon Valley got cooperation from its teachers, parents, and school boards to allow students back in the classroom. Hi everyone, my name is Vanessa Richardson and I am Executive Director of California Groundbreakers. Welcome to our new episode of This Changes Everything and thank you for tuning in. So last time we talked about going back to the office. This time we're focusing on going back to school. We are recording this on April 1st, and right now, California's public school districts for grades K to 12 are at various levels of being open and having plans for opening back up. Some have been letting all their students come back at once. Others are bringing them back in groups, often younger kids coming in first, high schoolers later. Some are offering a mix of hybrid learning on two or three days of the week, in-person learning on the other days of the week, and some are still figuring it out and negotiating their plans and may not be opening up at all before the school year ends. But there was at least one school district in California that opened its schools back up on the first day of the school year with a hybrid model of in-person and virtual learning options for its students. That is Cajon Valley Unified School District, which has 27 schools. It's located east of San Diego. Now, Cajon Valley is a rarity in the state. At the beginning of the school year, more than 9 out of 10 of California's 6.3 million public school students were doing only distance learning. Cajon Valley was at one point the only school district in the nation, I believe, and David can correct me later if if I'm wrong, that was open for in-person learning. There's also another reason why Cajon Valley is an outlier nationally. Uh, Many of its students are Hispanic. Many of them are poor enough to receive free and reduced price lunches. So in unofficial terms, those students are low-income families from underserved neighborhoods. What makes Cajon Valley uh, outlier is that nationally, high poverty schools are significantly more likely to offer remote-only instruction. But Cajon Valley District Superintendent David Miyashiro knew that remote-only was not going to work for his students and their parents. So right from the start of the pandemic, he had a plan for keeping his students engaged and involved in learning and doing it in person when possible. And he got the buy-in from teachers and the school board too, which seems to be a rarity in California these days. Thus, Cajon Valley is a good example of how a school district could shoulder on and keep it together during the pandemic and be a model going forward for how a school district 
can move forward post-pandemic with a revised, improved, or totally brand new plan for educating its students. So we have David Miyashiro here to tell us about the lessons he's learned over the past 12 months, what his schools are doing now, and what his plan is for the schools in the 2021-2022 school year and beyond. So welcome, David. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Vanessa. So I want to take you back in time to March 2020, a little over a year ago, when the pandemic was just closing in, it was making a lot of news, and you were realizing this is going to be a big deal. It's going to hit our schools, our parents, and students. So just take us back to the time when you had to realize, I have to make some decisions and figure out what those decisions are. How did you react and what did you decide to do? Sure. In early March, when we started getting notices from the government, from the governor, from CNN that, that this virus was happening and that it's a, a real danger. We sent notices home that we were washing hands and that we were taking very good care of our facilities and making sure the kids are safe. Uh, in no way, not even till March 13th, did we think that we'd actually close our schools, but it came all at once, all 42 San Diego school districts uh, in partnership with public health officials decided to close schools temporarily. And so I made a short, video for our students and said, boys and girls, we're going to miss you for these next two weeks. But just by staying home, you're doing your part in uh, stopping this, this thing called the coronavirus, which you might have heard of. And we'll see you in a couple weeks, right? And that's what we all thought. You know, we'll, we'll close down for a couple weeks. We'll come back. This will be gone. And then immediately we began stakeholder meetings with our teachers, our classified staff, our management team, and our parents. And the first parent call was, was really insightful in terms of the types of fear and uncertainty that was prevalent in our community. We have uh, 27 schools, so I invited the PTA president from each school and a plus one, please bring another parent leader. And we're just gonna come on a call and, and we wanna hear how you're doing. You know, do the kids have their devices? What, what are the needs? Uh, we're gonna provide meal service. So we had a communication plan so that we would still provide our free and reduced lunch. And then what that call turned into be was a therapy session. And we, we heard tears, we heard fear, we heard hope. Um, and it, the hour went by like a snap. And we said, would you like to have another call? And they said, yes. So we said, okay, so what, why don't we meet weekly for now? And then we formed this amazing group of, of close-knit friends now. We've had literally hundreds of parent meetings online with, with 50 plus parents and staff just listening and leaning into how we're ex experiencing the pandemic. And that's what really fueled our decisions. It, it was really to serve the families and provide for their needs. And because our teachers, because our principals, because our school board were all on these calls, we recorded the Zoom meetings and we posted them online so anyone that missed it could hear it. Uh, it, it was really a, a no one had to buy in. It was a decision that we all made together. And I'm really proud of our leadership and our supportive community that, that provided for our families during a really hard time and continues to do so. So going forward then after that, you did have to come up with a, a lesson plan for remote learning technology was involved. But it sounded like, based on what I've read, because the, the, the district has been covered in terms of what it's done in the past 12 months, you had a lot of advanced planning in this, especially when it came to technology and its use in the classroom and outside the classroom. So just tell us how you planned uh, for remote learning 
at the technology needed and and what what worked what were some facets of that 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 you thought would be very useful well just like uh, netflix saw the future and went streaming when blockbuster said no we're going to keep our physical stores and blockbuster's gone now we saw that that advances in technology and machine learning and data science would provide better tools and resources for our teachers to teach and for our students to learn so in 2013 we made a decision to provide ubiquitous Wi-Fi and access to a device for every student and every teacher. And so our current eighth graders have ne never known a day where they didn't own their own Chromebook that said Cajon Valley on it. So when we had to transition from uh, Friday the 13th to Monday, March 16th and start distance learning, it was really a seamless process for us. Our kids just opened up, they're used to being on their devices and our teachers were able to connect with them through digital playlists and things that we put temporarily not realizing that we're gonna be in this for, for months and months. So technology wasn't an issue for us where I think a lot of districts, that was a stumbling point uh, that didn't have that type of infrastructure in place and a huge lift to buy devices, train people and get folks connected. So when did the school year begin, this, this recent one? When did it begin for you? Again in August. And end of August. So setting up the classrooms visually, what did you tell us, describe to us how those uh, classrooms looked like? Yeah, it, actually we started in, in April of last year and we were ultra conservative because there weren't any state or local plans or guidelines yet. The only images of school happening during a pandemic were from Singapore, from Australia, from Germany. Some of the countries that were hit first and then began to, to bring some students back to their schools. So we used those images. And I remember taking a couple of team members to Trader Joe's. It's a local uh, grocery store out here. And we walked through there to see how they put uh, markings on the floor. They put some distancing things up and, and had a hand sanitizing station. And we used those early models to build our first uh, free childcare for essential workers at one of our school sites. And so the classes, they looked very sterile. They were, the desks were far apart. Each child had their own materials, nothing to share. Uh, back then, the directions were not to wear masks, but to wash your hands because we didn't know yet how the virus was going to be spread, right? So we took every precaution with, with hand sanitizing and, and distancing as possible. So the kids were, were six to 12 feet apart when they were walking, coming into classrooms. But I'll tell you, even though the classroom environment was sterile, because kids had been in their homes isolated for several weeks, when they came back to school, and a lot of these kids didn't even know each other, they said, I just met my new best friend. You know, Kids were excited. And when they left the classroom to go see their parents picking them up, there's just joy on their face. Do I get to come back here tomorrow? And you can see tears on our, our parents' eyes, just seeing their kids happy. And the parents in the early days of our free childcare, they would bring groceries and gift cards and, and just all kinds of things to thank the employees that were here serving their children. Because what they told us in the beginning was, we don't have an option. My wife's a nurse, I work in law enforcement. We have to go to work. There's no one to watch my child. And my grandparent, you know, our, our, our folks are too old. We don't, we're not gonna bring them here. So hearing that over and over again, all of our families you know, stressed about work and not having someone to support the children in the home. A lot of our families were leaving the children home by themselves. You know, 
unsupervised. These are fifth graders, fourth graders watching their, their baby brothers. And hearing that over and over again is, is just, we, we just figured out we had, we had to figure out something. Mm-hmm. And so we opened, we opened up. And since you opened up, up to now, today, again, like I mentioned, is uh, April 1st. What has happened since then? Has anything happened? Uh, have the school rooms stayed the same? Has the number of students increased or, or decreased uh, in terms of in-person attending? What kind yeah. of things? One of the things that I think is a lesson learned for others is, is you want to start small, not all at once. We started with 20 students. And then when we felt we could do it safely, we invited 20 more. And then slowly grew that program to about 300 students. Even though the demand was much higher, we didn't get to everybody because we we're scaling uh, slowly, making sure that our students would behave. You know, safety is really a behavior. It's a practice. You know, are you going to wear your mask or not? Are you going to social distance or not? So that was the X factor. We, we knew what to do to keep safe, but you know, will a first grader abide by social distancing guidelines? That was a big question mark. But I'll tell you, our preschoolers can do it. Anybody can do it. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more episodes of This Changes Everything, literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on the right-hand side of our podcast page on SoundCloud. That's at soundcloud.com slash Groundbreakers, Or click on the Donate tab of our homepage of our website at californiagroundbreakers.org. And if you have questions to ask about how California will change in post-pandemic times, or you want to suggest a topic to cover, or an expert to interview for an episode of This Changes Everything, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org and give us a few details so we can get in touch. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. Obviously, one thing that has been discussed besides just the nationwide uh, as well as here is uh, mental health uh, in students and how it's just, a, it's very hard. Obviously your students were coming back in and you had mentioned how happy they were to be there, but for overall in the district, did you notice that there were issues of mental health that you needed to address? If so, how did you do so? Yeah, we have a team of about 30 counselors and they did several thousand counseling sessions just within the first few months and their outreach with our community liaisons. We have 42 different languages spoken. I think we have the largest Middle Eastern refugee population in the country here in El Cajon. Uh, outreach was hard, but it was intentional. And we had people early in the pandemic going door to door, visiting families in their homes, just to check on them. Because there were certain families that weren't responding to email or weren't responding to phone calls. So our people went out there and did outreach. and made an intentional plan to connect. Now, uh, the New York Times, this is where I found you actually, the New York Times stories. I, I get a lot of our uh, article ideas from there. And they had written based on the reopening of the schools, quote, at a moment where many communities feel abandoned by their schools, Cajon Valley's ability to partially reopen its buildings with the support of both families and teachers is a testament to the importance of an easily overlooked commodity during the pandemic, trust. So I wanted to ask you about the importance of trust 
And especially now when you hear so much about uh, uh, tensions between parents and teachers and school boards and, and school districts. It sounds like trust is a lacking thing. So I did want to start uh, off with, I guess, uh, trust, working with teachers, building trust, you know, before the pandemic, during the pandemic. Uh, what are, how did you do it? And how did you make sure that you worked with teachers and, and, and made a plan that you both could agree on? I think having been here for eight years helps because we've gone through a lot together. There's, we've closed a neighborhood school. There's, there's been a lot of trauma, uh, a lot of loss. And so we've been through some hard things together, but our two union presidents, Mark and Chris, the uh, teachers union and classified union, their leadership was, was, was pivotal to our success. And a lot of folks have criticized unions, but when union leadership is good, then the unions are good because unions organize labor to do the important work and organizing our groups to do the important work of serving our students was no easy lift. It was, it was some heavy lifting. And so our, I, I credit our unions for the work we've done. Um, the other thing is when we had our meetings with our union leaders, with our parents, by recording everything and then posting it on the website, it's 100% transparent. There are no secrets. There's, there's no inner group making decisions. We're just having conversations. How's everybody doing? How are our families doing? One of the conversations I remember with our, our teachers association is um, the California Teachers Association, the larger one in California, they preach equity, they preach social justice. When we look across our district and saw that the majority of students that didn't have an option for some support at home, they were our students of color. They were our low-income students. So if we're going to bang the drum of social justice and equity, let's serve our families. Because it was the, the families that have uh, resources and means that were hiring a learning pod, that were sending kids to private school and paying for it, that would take their kids to work and have a nanny there. Our, our low-income families don't have the extra disposable income to do those things. So it was those families that were hurting the most. And it was for those reasons that, that we've really made it a unified effort to make school an option for every family that wanted to come to school. And I guess the same question for, I guess, school boards. Uh, we up here in uh, Northern California are a lot of attention's being focused on San Francisco and it's school board issues there um, and maybe you know, other, other people in the school district. So, you know, building trust with school boards and school districts when you need it, advice on that, on that manner. One of the things I've learned through my experience here is, is one of my jobs, because a board can turn over every two to four years based on an election cycle, is board development and team building. My, one of my central jobs, other than being secretary of the board and to be their employee, is to develop them, to provide resources and access to important information that they need to make decisions on, to include them in the conversations that we're having with the community. And so our board, Thankful to the five of them, their leadership was again crucial to this, but I think that that's the responsibility of the superintendent and the cabinet to have the communication with them so they feel confident with the decisions they're making, whether it's safety, whether it's, it's equipment or resources, and certainly reopening schools. There's a couple of things I wanted to ask you about that to me seem like warning signs about what could be ahead. Uh, for schools in, in California, but maybe all over the, the nation. 
Number one is uh, school teachers and how many of them will be around going forward. Uh, I read a story that the number of school teachers is dropping and may be continuing to do so because of retirement, the teachers retiring because they were planning to or because the pandemic made them decide. And also fewer young people entering the profession because of the pandemic or whatever reason. Do you see that as a possibility? Does that concern you? You're like, what, what do you think as a superintendent of a school district in California, uh, you should think about when it comes to that? We, we just hired 80 teachers between December and today, 80 teachers. And we still have a list of folks that, that want to come work for us. We're doing that partly to reduce class sizes and to plan for next year. Uh, but we value employee engagement. We hire Gallup to measure the satisfaction of our teachers working for us. We care deeply about them as customers. We treat our employees as our first customers. So when we talk about teachers, uh, the conversation about teacher salary, that's one aspect of a quality of life of a teacher. Do we treat them as, as professionals? Do we include them in decision-making? Do we care about how they feel at work? You know, are we providing for a conducive work environment? If we created that for teachers, then people would want to go into the profession. You know, in lots of countries, teacher is the, they're at the top of the food chain in terms of respect, you know, highest paid, uh, you know, Finland, some of the Norwegian countries that you aspire to be a teacher, only the best college students get to teach. If we change that here, then we wouldn't have the problem we have. Um, so I do think we need to invest not just in the, the fiscal health of our teachers, but the emotional well-being and valuing them as the essential workers that they are. Another warning sign, I'm wondering if you see this in your district, but definitely in California, uh, a trend of more parents moving their kids from public schools that remain closed to private schools that are open or home homeschooling. Um, that seems like it could hurt uh, the funding of local public school districts going forward, demographics. Uh, is that a concern? You know, what do you, is that a concern for you? And what, what would you say about that? I think that private schools and charter schools have in their budgets a plan for marketing and recruiting. They see themselves as competing for customers and public school districts for the longest time haven't had to compete. The charter school movement that started in the 80s was designed to do that, to, to force public schools to innovate, to start really serving the niche communities that they have in their, their neighborhoods. And for us, we, we treat our families as customers. We serve families, not just the children in front of us, but their parents. And really leaning into the parents and saying, how can we better serve you? you know, what can we do uh, so that when you go talk to your, your neighbor or your cousin, you say, we're so happy with our school district, you have to bring your children here. That's a strategy that Southwest Airlines, that Starbucks, that you know, businesses use to create more customers. And if our students are leaving us, well, I think that's our fault. And in order to win them back, we're gonna to have to serve them. To when we see a family or, or a student, care about the person that's six feet in front of you. Ask them how they're doing. How are you today? I'm so happy that you're here. You know, we don't hear that enough in our schools and our campuses. And I think that if customer service and marketing and branding become a part of a school district, then they'll be able to retain and keep students. If they don't have a strategy for that, then I think that there's a fiscal cliff coming because we're driven, our, our budgets are driven by attendance. 
So I have a couple more questions to ask you, and one is for you specifically about the schools in Cajon Valley uh, opening up again in for the 2021-2022 school year. Based on lessons you've learned over the past 12 months, when you open up the schools again, and ideally we're all going back, uh, what, what lessons that you've learned over the past 12 months will inform how school opens up in August? So our vision is happy kids engaged in healthy relationships on a path to gainful employment. That's been our vision for the last four years, focusing on happy kids. And that means, you know, kids that have self-esteem, they have self-awareness and self-love. You know, that, that's what you wouldn't want anything more for your own child than that. And then a belief that the people at the school care about him or her. And we foster relationships between the kids, but also the kids and adults, healthy relationships. And then a path to gainful employment. It's not enough to serve families in poverty. We have to help, help families in poverty get out of poverty. And we only do that by intentional career development, preparing our kids for the current workforce. And we've seen during the pandemic that those are the right drivers you know, kids' mental health, their emotional well-being, their relationships with the adults and their friends, and then not talking about learning loss, but hope for the future. You know, kids, they had a temporary disruption to school, but they can still be that engineer or the pediatrician or the, the firefighter or police officer. We haven't disrupted their career trajectory. And I think that's what we need to focus on coming back is hope, engagement, what are we in school to do in, in terms of our future? And then really caring about the children and their families and valuing them with the way that we speak to them, the way that we treat them and the way we serve them. And last question, uh, and this is for you, I guess, to address to everyone listening, but in particular, maybe we have a few people up here in Sacramento that work, I guess, at top level, you know, state, federal, uh, offices focusing on education. So they're obviously looking at what's going, you know, going forward for the future of education post-pandemic. What would you say to them? What should they keep in mind? What, sh what should they even do if you could tell them? We need to measure and hold schools accountable for those three drivers. Happy kids, healthy relationships on a path to gainful employment. Because if we're successful, they grow into happy adults in healthy relationships, gainfully employed. If you're a happy adult, engaged in healthy relationships, and you're gainfully employed, you're not gonna commit crime. You're not gonna do drugs or alcohol. You're, you're not gonna you know, do all the things that we try to prevent because it doesn't align. You can't be a healthy, happy individual and, and committing you know, crime or doing things that, being homeless, doesn't equate. If we wanna solve the homeless problem, solve the crime problem, solve the injustice problem, happy kids, healthy relationships on a path to gainful employment. That's the trajectory. We can solve our communities. Yeah, so much of it starts in the schools, right? Abe Lincoln said, let's teach the children so we don't have to teach the adults. <laughs> brilliant advice, right? That is brilliant and it should be applied more. David Mirashira, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, enjoy your spring break. You've been listening and, to California uh, Good luck with the rest of the school year. And this and, changes and going everything, forward. episode thank three, you, Vanessa, look which to was the recorded report. on April 1st of 2021. Thanks to David Miyashiro for taking the time to talk with us. Also, thanks to Nate Graham and Caleb Clark for recording and producing this podcast. Special thanks to Yvonne Richardson, one of our Groundbreakers supporters, for donating funds to help us produce this episode. And of course, thanks to you for listening. 
If you find our podcast worth listening to in these difficult times, consider making a donation and supporting our efforts to produce more informative, inspiring conversations about what Californians should expect in the post-pandemic future. You can do that, as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, events, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.